in a Bible, there should be a blue or a blue and white copy around you. I'd love for you to take that and, and read along with us. So hear these words from uh, the author Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. So we have uh, in Exodus 19, what some scholars would say is probably uh, one of the more significant passages in the entirety of the Bible right? Um, It's really hard to underestimate how this passage frames up. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of references throughout the rest of the Bible back to this in the Old Testament as the prophets reflect on what was happening in the Exodus, and then really echoes of this into the New Testament uh, in in the writings of uh, Paul and and other uh, New Testament authors. And so it's a really significant passage uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, It's kind of poetry, so you see kind of the way that it's structured, um, I'm sure some of you are reading like in your Hebrew Bible this morning. Uh, You can kind of see in the grammar, uh, the parallelism and the poetry here uh, that's reflected throughout this passage. Uh, When you see repetition and you see parallelism in the structure, you know that that's kind of the Hebrew way of saying, hey, pay attention to this. It's important. Um, God's saying something that's really significant. And and so there's kind of the grammar piece, but then there's just the, the fulfillment here. We we we, we are seeing the fulfillment of God's promise to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. So if you were here with us a couple months ago, God met Moses in the wilderness. And so Moses, remember, uh, kills somebody, uh, commits murder, and then he's exiled to the wilderness essentially for 40 years. God appears to him in the burning bush and speaks these words in Exodus 3. He says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, which is where we find ourselves now, you will serve God on this very mountain. So God is bringing Moses full circle. He's at this mountain, and, and nobody exactly knows where Sinai is, uh, where Mount Horb is. Uh, there's a couple different um, thoughts there, but the most important thing is God is saying, this place where I spoke to you and revealed myself is the very place where I'm now speaking to you again in this next kind of episode of the saga of what it means to be uh, my people. And so um, there's a shift here from kind of the wandering in the wilderness to now settling in. So we see them camp, and they're going to be here at, uh, at the foot of the mountain for about a year, right? So we see here, this is the third new moon. Number says uh, they're going to move out in just under a year out into, uh, towards the promised land. And so um, this is kind of a, a precursor to chapters 20 through 24, where God gives them the law, right? And so the next four or five chapters, we're going to see God uh, kind of unveil for the people through Moses and Aaron 
the law, or what uh, in, the, in the Hebrew is called the Torah. Uh, law kind of gets a bad rap, and people don't like to kind of think of law in the Bible and law in God, but law, the Torah just simply means teachings or instruction. So God's going to give them uh, kind of a, a bunch of instructions on what it looks like to be his uh, people amidst the other people's of the world. And I want to just set this up by pointing, something that bothered me this week as I was preparing this, and I don't know if this bothers you at all, maybe it's some of my background in church, but I want to explain something about the relationship of what God's doing with his people to his giving of the law. And I think it's really important that we see this because there's a way to read this as kind of an if-then thing, like if you do these things, then God will do this, kind of a quid pro quo uh, relationship that God's establishing here, like perform, do these certain things, and then I'll reward you with these other things. And I want to make sure that we're all clear that that's not what's happening here uh, in this passage. Love always precedes law. It's not the other way around. Um, so the therefore comes after something else that God says uh, in verse 4. So let's read this back because I want to make sure we, we see this. Uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says. How I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. So before there's ever a mention of the law, before there's one command or precept laid down, God says, don't forget the bigger picture of what I'm doing here. The goal of the Exodus was to free you, and not just to free you from slavery, but to free you, as he says, as Moses says in chapter 4, to worship me, right? So the goal of freedom is not freedom, it's always been about bringing people into a worshiping community where God is their father and they are his children, right? And, and that's really important for us. God is here reaffirming this, this covenant that he's started with uh, back in the book of Genesis. If you remember anything about the Old Testament, God comes to a man named Abraham, a wealthy pagan, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to establish a covenant with you. The idea of covenant, think, think marriage, think promise. I'm entering into a relationship with you where I'm committing myself to you and I'm inviting you to commit yourself to me. And so we see here again this word covenant, if you keep my covenant. This is, this is marriage language. And that's what we see really throughout the book of Exodus is that God is presenting himself as a husband who's marrying his bride, right? The idea of the cloud that kind of hovers over in a Jewish wedding. You had the chutzpah um, the, the covering that represented kind of the, the cloud of God, the presence of God. Um, God says, uh, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to marry you, and then I'm not going to just be the kind of husband who, like, you know, sh- who just marries you, and then we live in separate quarters, but I'm actually going to move in with you. And that's kind of the point at the end of the book of Exodus with the tabernacle. I'm building a home for myself. I'm going to literally live with you and among you, and I'm going to be in relationship. And God says, I am doing this for a relationship with you. I've borne you on eagle's wings. The idea of an eagle is I've swooped in, right? Like eagles, eagles are not um, safe creatures, right? Like don't think of an eagle and think of like some Christian t-shirt or like coffee cup or it's like as a deer pants for water and there's like a picture of a deer and an eagle kind of, like no. An eagle, I mean, if you've been, if you know anything about eagles, they're, they're dangerous, right? Like they have big talons and you would like riding on the wings of an eagle would be one of the most frightening experiences of your life, right? Like, think Lord of the Rings. When the eagles show up, things go badly for everybody, right? That's, that's what's happening. God said, I've delivered you on the wings of an eagle. I am your eagle. I am your protector. I am your warrior. 
And I, I'm bringing you to me. I'm bringing you into a relationship with me. Now, that's important for us to say because God's saying, I've brought you into a relationship, now therefore live this way. It's not live this way, then I'll give you my covenant promises. It's I've brought you into a relationship, now enjoy it. And that makes all the, that, that is truly, in my opinion, the difference between religion and grace. Religion says do these things, and then God is obligated to give you these things, these blessings. That's why some of us are disillusioned with religion. Because we're like, I've done all the things and God didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. We had this kind of contractual view of God. And what he says is, no, I've already brought you into a relationship. Now live as my free child. Right? Obedience, in other words, um, is not here concerned with covenant status, like entering into the covenant. God's already done all that. He's saying you didn't have to do anything. I have prepared the way for you. It's not concerned with covenant status. It's concerned with covenant enjoyment. If you will delight in the things that I delight in, you will live freely with me. So obedience isn't our part in this like two-sided bargain, but it's a great, grateful response to what God has already unilaterally done. And now he's inviting them to truly live into what delights his heart. And so that's just, I, I want to make sure we hear that. Grace is I've done this for you, now therefore live this way. And that makes all the difference in how we view God. So God here is inviting them to deepen their relationship with him, and he's going to shift here. There's another shift here that's happening in this passage. He's going to shift from a focus on his identity to now a focus on their identity. So we move from God saying, remember throughout the book of Exodus, God says, I am this, I am this. I am this. I am the God who is your healer, we saw in the wilderness. I am the God who, uh, I am who I am, he says. I am the God who is your rescuer, your redeemer, right? He shifts here, though, in chapter 19 from a discussion of his identity to now a discussion of their identity. And that's what I want to kind of talk about in our time today is what does it mean to discover the identity that God has for us and to live out of the calling that comes from that identity? And here, he's talking specifically about uh, their corporate identity as a people, right? Because again, Israel's freed not just from oppression, right? So uh, they need an identity that's bigger than just being an enslaved people who are now free. Because if your identity is in your wounds and in your, your, your powerlessness, then what happens when you get free? It's not big enough to handle a, a larger purpose. And so God's saying, I'm freeing you for a bigger identity and a bigger purpose. Now that you've seen who I am, I'm going to tell you who you are in light of who I am. That's the heart behind discovering our identity. Now that you've seen who I am, I'm ready to show you who you are. And he's talking corporately. And so I, I think this can be very helpful for us. Think of the corporate as, as the scaffolding, right? Like all of us are kind of freaking out, like about... Uh, especially younger people, about like our identity, like what am I going to do with my life, and what's my calling, and what's my job supposed to be, and I'm out of grad school, and I've got all this debt, student debt that's mounting, and I don't know, you know, and you're anxious, and we're, we're all just kind of preoccupied with trying to figure this out. I want to offer this up to you as the kind of the scaffolding or the pillars upon which you can build your own personal identity and calling. Like these things are always true for us if you're in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, and so what we see here is that identity, first and foremost, is something that's a gift that we receive by grace. It's not something that we achieve through effort. You don't achieve or earn an identity 
through sweat, right? Um, we receive an identity by grace. And it's really important that we know who we are. It's really important that we have a solid sense of who we are in relationship to God. Right? Like, some of us, we, we know God, but we are so disconnected from ourselves. And we don't see our identity in light of who God is and who God said we are, which is true reality. Right? God's inviting them into reality here. This is something that's been really foundational for uh, writers around spiritual formation and discipleship for millennia, right? They've talked about the importance of not only knowing who God is, but knowing who we are in light of who God is. It's the foundation for living a healthy and whole life, the Bible says. Uh, Let me give you some examples, some quotes here, just so you don't think I'm making this up, because I know some of us are like, ah, this is like pop psychology, and it's all about your identity, and this feels kind of weird for some of us. So let me just introduce you to some older figures who've talked about this. Uh, The African bishop, Augustine, back in the 5th century, uh, says this, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I might know myself, that I might know thee. St. Teresa of Avila, a Spanish mystic, said it like this in the 15th century, Almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin, certainly no mystic and not a Spanish guy that I know of, uh, would later go on to write in his uh, tome uh, on uh, kind of the Christian life. He says, our wisdom uh, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. These are connected together by many ties, and it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the others. We must know God, and in coming to know God, we know something about ourselves. But we also must know ourselves if we're going to come to know God in deeper ways. And he says the two always work together. Some of us, we know all of this theology, but it's so detached, right? It has nothing to do and is blissfully unaware of, of how we're showing up as a person. It's not connected to who we are. Some of us have all of this self-knowledge, right, because we live in a culture that's narcissistic's putting it a nice way, right? Like very obsessed with self-discovery. And I'm all in on self-discovery as long as it leads us somewhere, right? Like self-discovery can become a bridge to nowhere, right? We discover something and then it's like, okay, now what? The, the knowledge is supposed to lead us to transformation, which comes by knowing God. So we know God and we know ourselves and we know God a little bit more and we know ourselves a little bit more deeply. That's what they're arguing for here. It's what Calvin and St. Teresa and Augustine and Uh, David Benner, more recently in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, says this, Knowing God and knowing self are therefore interdependent. Neither can proceed very far without the other. Paradoxically, we come to know God best, not by looking at God exclusively, but by looking at God, then looking at ourselves, then looking at God, and then looking at ourselves again. This is also the way we best come to know ourselves. Both God and self are most fully known in relationship to each other. Last one, Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says it like this. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, to our relationship with God, and ultimately to other people. So, God here is saying, I've told you who I am. Now let me tell you who you are, right? Like who God says you are is the most important reality of your life. 
And it takes a lifetime to begin to deconstruct all the ways that we have developed a false sense of identity and to begin to rebuild that as we weave that into who God says we are. And so that's what I want us to begin to see here is that God, before he gives them a law, before he gives them anything to do, before he gives them any commands and any window into his heart, he says, remember who you are. Who you are and who you're becoming is priority over what you're doing for God. We get it backwards. We do things for God. And we're not really concerned about who we are or who we're becoming. God says, no, the order is, I tell you who you are. I remind you who you are. And you're going to see this as a refrain. Like if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the key word in the book of Deuteronomy is remember. Don't forget who you are. And when things go badly for Israel, it is when they forget who they are in light of who God is. Over and over and over again. I mean, it's literally like, you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? It's a really old movie. It's like every day we wake up and we forget again. And the external voices crowd out, right? The, our parents' voices in our heads, our, our employers, like, uh, you know, our, our communities, our, our, like people's voices are in our head. And we have to remember every day, this is who I am. This is who God said I am. So what does God say? What does God say? Maybe we'll be surprised. Three things that he says about um, his people that he wants them to know in terms of forming their identity. First, he says, you're a treasured possession, Secondly, he says, you're a holy nation. Thirdly, you're a kingdom of priests. You're a treasured possession. You're a holy nation. You're a kingdom of priests. Let's look at those in succession. First, he says, you are my treasured possession. Look back in verse 5. You will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, this idea of a treasure, if you think back to the ancient Near Eastern monarchy system, uh, in, the, in that system, the royal family owned everything, right? They owned the roads. They owned all of the wealth. They owned all of the capital. Everything uh, came under the possession of the royal family. But within the royal family, this word treasure actually means private wealth. And so within all that they owned, uh, oftentimes royal families would set aside in a special place certain things that they wanted to delight in more than others. So I don't know what those things are. Some royal comb, some piece of jewelry, uh, some special possession that they had taken. But the point is, they had this little, this little room that was their private wealth. And it was the things that they had specially set aside to delight in in a very unique way. That's what God says about us, his people. He says, I own everything. This is a, this is a claim like a monotheistic claim, God is saying, I am not a tribal deity. I'm not like the gods of Baal. I own the entire earth. But out of all that I own, I have chosen you. I'm setting you aside as my private wealth. I have set my affection on you in a special way to delight in you, to love you, to heal you, to be your God, and to demonstrate my love to the world. So let me just put that in like really simple terms. We are deeply loved. We are deeply loved. And I have to say that because we don't hear God that way. We don't feel loved. We live in the brokenness of life and we, we forget that we're loved by God. Like when I say to you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? What's the first imagery that comes into your mind? What do you think God is thinking about you right now? After last night, after this weekend, after the last month that you've had, what does God think of you? 
for most of us, it's not like, oh, he loves me. You know, I'm deeply loved by God. Like so much of our image of God is rooted in fear. Like God's this overbearing father who's, you know, raining down like, you know, cancer and is raining down judgments. I was talking to a man this week walking through a divorce. And it was just like, how easy is it for him to say, you know what, like I'm wondering if these are just punishments from God as I walk through this for this mistake that I made somewhere back in here. And it's easy for us to get into that mindset. God is, is to be feared, and so we cower before him as an overbearing, abusive father figure. He is uh, this perfectionistic parent who wants us to get all the rules right. We have this legalistic view of God that God has, again, this quid pro quo thing with us. And, and what I want us to see here is that, no, God loves us. He sets us aside and says, I am going to delight in you. I love you. I'm going to heal you. God doesn't simply tolerate you or like you. He loves you. He loves you. We must get that down into our guts. And and I think for some of us, our experiences with church make it hard for us to hear those words. Because in the church, I didn't grow up in church. I came kind of really to get involved with church as a teenager. And um, there's an emphasis in a lot of the teaching and, and a lot of our church experiences on the fact that we're really messed up sinners, right? So we hear this word all the time, you're jacked up, you're a worm, you're a terrible human being. We kind of have this really, and, and again, I'm not disagreeing with the fact that the Bible teaches that we are sinners, right? Clearly, from beginning to end, from Genesis 3 all the way until uh, Jesus comes to the New Testament, there is a clear teaching of the reality of sin in our lives. But when that becomes the main focus when that becomes the headliner, when that becomes the only thing we talk about, we begin to relate to God and what Dallas Willard uh, famously said is the gospel of sin management, not the gospel of grace. And so I, I focus on my brokenness, I focus on my sin, I'm this terrible person, and then we walk with all of the shame and guilt in our relationship with God, forgetting that Jesus came to free us from those things. And so the difference is not that we're not sinners, But I would just add like a prefix to that, like a clause to that and say, we are dearly loved sinners, right? Like we are sinful. If you don't believe me, just wait. Like the older you get, the more you begin to see, okay, I've got some serious darkness living inside of me. Wait till you get married. Wait till you have children. Wait till you start fighting and advocating for the poor. You will see the darkness in your own soul. But you are also loved more than you could ever imagine. I mean, those things exist in tension with one another. I am a sinner, but I am a dearly loved sinner. I mean, I think that makes all the difference in the world in how we approach God. Because if I, if I see myself as loved by God apart from what I'm doing for God, it creates the safety, the psychological safety and trust for us to obey God. Because now it's not conditional on my behavior. God is already delighting in me. He already loves me. He's already declared a future over me because of Jesus Christ. And so now I'm free to delight in what God delights in. I mean, that's the heart behind the law. The law is not, don't do this. The law is saying, this is my vision for human flourishing. This is my vision for wholeness. Now delight in the things that I delight in. The law is a window into God's heart. Is that the way that you see the law? Not prohibitions, but invitations to life. When you love somebody... You try, at least, I'm learning, I'm trying, to delight in what they delight in. So I've been married 15 years this, uh, this summer, my wife and I. And um, there are certain things that my wife delights in 
that prior to being married to her, like, would not even be on my radar screen, not only to not delight in, but to even tolerate or dabble in, right? I mean, my wife loves true crime shows and podcasts. She's right here. Like, she loves true crime shows. That stuff freaks me out, right? Like, I can't, she watches it before bed, and I'm just like, that, I have nightmares, and she delights in it. Like, she loves it follows podcasts. She's on all these like justice podcasts and stuff. And I'm like, that stuff scares me to death. And so like last night, a couple nights ago, we're talking. She's like, why don't you delight in this thing? You don't like, I'm like, I'm trying. I just can't. I'm, tr- I'm learning to try to delight in crime shows, but it's not my thing. I- I've learned to delight in art museums, right? Like I got my wife a pass to Newfields, and, like, I couldn't, I am the worst, like, I have no artistic brain at all. I mean, I have, like, a malformed, shrunken, whatever, that right brain or whatever. Like, I cannot look at art and make any sense of it. But I'm learning to delight in walking around new fields with my wife and try to act like I know what I'm talking about. I'm learning to delight in biking. Like, I just never was, like, a bike guy. I played sports growing up, and my wife's like, I want to get a bike and ride around the neighborhood. And I'm like... All right, you know, so I'm learning to, like, delight in that. I'm learning to delight in Pioneer Woman, somebody I've never, I would have never known apart from my wife. I'm, I'm learning. Like, that's what you do when you are loving someone. You learn to delight in what they delight in. And God says, these are the things I delight in. I delight in you, and I delight in this vision for a new city, a new society. And so as I'm redeeming you, I'm calling you to delight in these same things. We are a treasured possession. We're a holy nation. We're a holy nation. Now, holiness has kind of fallen on bad uh, times, hard times, right? Because we think of holiness and we think of like a buttoned up, like if you watched, you know, like The Simpsons growing up, you think of like that Ned Flanders character or South Park. Like we have, holiness is like none of us really want to be holy. That just sounds like super stuffy and buttoned up. Um, But the word holy actually just means set apart for a special purpose, You are a holy nation. You have been set apart by God for a special purpose. Let me put a metaphor in your head that might hook this for you a little bit better. I want you to, when you think of the word holiness, and hopefully you'll never forget this, I want you to think of your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is holy. It is set apart by God for a specific purpose, to clean your teeth only. Your your toothbrush should not be used to scrub the grout in between your bathroom tiles. Your toothbrush should not be uh, used, hypothetically speaking, by your children unbeknownst to you to clean the toilet. Right? Like if you discover that it's being used for other purposes than cleaning your mouth or that your spouse is using your toothbrush without your knowledge. Like we need to talk about that, right? Like that is not holy. Let's, let's, some people are to the first service like, what's wrong with that? I'm like, we need, I, you need prayer. Like we just, we need to throw some oil on you or something. Like that's not the way it's supposed to work. They're for your teeth, set apart for a special purpose to clean your mouth. God says, you are my holy people. I'm setting you apart for a special purpose. And that holiness is not just to apply to us as individuals. He says, you're a holy nation. That word nation there is the word goy. The word goy means literally an entire nation state, right? A, A community, a city, right? That's why he uses kingdom language here in this passage. He's saying, this is communal. This is not just individual. This is not just individual salvation and personal piety between you and God. He says, I'm building a new kingdom. I'm building a new city where I am the king, and you are my citizens, and you are in relationship, covenant relationship with other human beings. 
You are called to live as a countercultural, distinctive city within the larger city of man. That's what I'm doing. I'm not just saving individuals. I'm saving a people. That's why, so let me just be clear with what I'm saying. The ramifications of this is that God, this, this has social implications. God's talking about our relationships. He's talking about interpersonal relationships, and he's also talking about an institution that he's building, which includes laws and policies and government, like the, the word political, this is a political, a socio-political reality here, and by political, I don't mean like the way we think of politics, the root of, polit- of political comes from the word polis, which means city. I'm forming a new government, he says, with new laws and new policies, and so you care about what I care about, you're going to care about these things, and that's why um, Leviticus 19 is an interesting case study here, um, because again, we tend to think in the church oftentimes of holiness as just personal piety, not social. But Leviticus 19, God says to the people, be holy because I'm holy. And then he's going to go on and unpack what it means to live as his holy people the rest of the chapter. Now, look at this list. Look at what this means for us. It's so social. Like, it is about personal piety. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It is about being devoted and being faithful to Yahweh, but it also includes how we treat our neighbor. It also includes our economic policies and how we treat the most vulnerable among us. It's so earthy and so practical and so focused on not just the vertical dimension of salvation, but the horizontal dimension of salvation. He's saying, I'm putting you in a relationship with other people. So respect the family and the community. Show economic generosity in agricultural dealings. Observe these commandments with respect to social relationships. Show economic justice in your employment rights. Social compassion to the disabled. Judicial integrity in the legal system. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have sexual integrity. Reject reject those practices connected with occults. No ill treatment of ethnic minorities, but rather equality before the law and practical love for the alien as for yourself. And that one's interesting because he says, remember that you were aliens. Remember, you, of all people, should know what it's like to be a refugee. You, of all people, should know what it's like to be an immigrant. And I'm not making a particular policy statement. I'm saying, you should know, God says. So treat others as I've treated you. Not just relationally, but when it comes to policies. And that's why the book of Leviticus really matters because God lays down laws and says the laws have to be just as well as the relationships. So my point in saying this is that community is the context where we live out our identity and calling. There are no solopreneurs when it comes to the kingdom of God. Nobody lives out their calling in isolation. You cannot determine and figure out your calling apart from the roles that you play in a community. And you can't think of your calling only in terms of, I do this. It's we, always in the Bible. So we need community to make sense of our identity and calling. God places us in a community which is just a matrix of multi-generational relationships and commitments and rituals and loyalties and needs and opportunities and a particular history that we find ourselves in that we are not free to just jettison to pursue our own liberation and our own individual destiny and calling. We are a holy nation.
what I do should matter to you. What you do should matter to me. Lastly, we're a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom of priests. What does it mean to be? So look back here in chapter 6. You will be to me or for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests, uh, their job was basically in the Old Testament to do two things. One, to bring the knowledge of God to the people. This is what we call instruction. This is the word Torah. And also to bring the prayers and the sacrifices of the people to God. So there's a dual role for priests. They bring God to the people and they mediate the presence of God, and represent the presence of God. And they're also to bring people to God. This is the, not only the identity, but now we're beginning to move into vocation, to calling, to purpose. This is the purpose of the people of God. He says, you will be, plural, a kingdom of priests, representing me to the world and bringing the people of the cities in which you inhabit to me, praying for them, offering them up to me, praying for their redemption, praying for justice, praying for their renewal. This is the only place in the entire Old Testament where these phrases are used, holy nation and kingdom of priests gets picked up again and repeated again in the New Testament, right? The writers of the New Testament draw on this a lot. So 1 Peter chapter 2 is a great example in laying out uh, uh, this, to this group of scattered Jews uh, and Gentiles finding themselves in different cities throughout the early Roman Empire. Peter writes these words of encouragement. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people called not, you're not your own possession. You belong to God that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This wasn't just something for people long ago. This is something for us. You are priests of God, called to bring the presence of God everywhere you go, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. You are priests. Identity always generates calling. Once we know who we are, then we begin to find our purpose in the world. But we have to know who we are. If we run ahead and we try to do without being, we run into disaster. So what God is saying here by calling them a holy nation and a kingdom of priests is as you experience the transforming presence of God in your life, you take that transforming presence and you let it shine everywhere you go. You represent God. You are, as the old adage says, literally, the only Jesus that a lot of people will see. I can't go into your workplace. I can't go into your neighborhood. I can't go into your family with your kids. That'd be creepy. I can't, I can't be these places. But you are, and you are empowered with God's spirit to do that. Everywhere you go, you represent God. This is the interplay between identity and calling. As we get a fixed sense of who we are in relationship with God, now God begins to call us out into the world. He draws us in, and then he pushes us out into the world to represent him. Benner again says this, identity is not static. It always gives direction to how we live our lives. The discovery of our true self does not simply produce freedom. It also generates vocation or calling or, or your work, right? Our vocation is always a response to a divine call to our place in the kingdom of God. Our vocation is a call to serve God and our fellow human beings in the distinctive way that fits, I love this phrase, the shape of our being. That's where the uniqueness of who God's made you begins to come in. And that's why it's so important that we grab onto our identity. 
Why is this so important for us right now? Let me just begin to close here with a couple thoughts. How does this apply to us, right? These are words that were spoken to a bunch of nomadic, you know, uh, Hebrews thousands of years ago. What does that have to do with me right now in my neighborhood with my problems and my burdens and my stresses and my opportunities? Here's the thing about, that we learn about this story. God declares these realities as true of his people. This is who I'm making you to be. But the reality is, just like us, Israel fails over and over again to live into their calling. They do, right? Like just a couple chapters later, they're going to sin and, and, and it's going to go badly for them. And we see that over and over again. It eventually ends with them getting exiled, right? Because their behavior has become so violent and oppressive. Like God's people have become violent and oppressive. They forget over and over again who they are in relationship with God and it goes badly. And so this, this story of the Exodus points us forward to the coming of Jesus, Right? So don't just read yourself into the story and say, okay, this is me. No, this is pointing us forward to a greater story, the story of Jesus. Jesus came in the New Testament to restore the image of God, to be the true Israel, to be the one who would fulfill the vocation and identity that Israel lost, and to reclaim their identity and calling in the world. And it's interesting if you read the language, like for the book of, the book of Matthew, for instance, what you see in the early chapters, chapters 3, uh, to seven, even the early uh, first two chapters, is you see the Exodus language beginning to come through in the book of Matthew and the way that Jesus saw himself and his mission in the world. So Jesus is set apart in Matthew chapter three. He's made holy. The Holy Spirit falls on him and God speaks out of a cloud and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So now we have another beloved son who's called to be in his person a holy nation. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, just like Israel is in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus, it says in chapter 4, has become a light to the nations, right, fulfilling Israel's vocation. Jesus, and then in chapter 5, he shows up and he goes up on a mountain. And what's he do? He gives a new law. It's not just some random ethical teachings about life. He begins to speak and say, blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. What's he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's giving them a new law. He's saying, this is, we're resetting the Exodus. He's reinterpreting the Mosaic law and saying, I am the one who's come as the king to bring a new kingdom, a new social ethic, a new way to live and be in the world. And then he lays down his life as the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and offers up not just an animal sacrifice, but offers up his own body as the sacrifice for our sins and purifies us with his blood. Now, why does that matter to you? Because what Jesus has done is the only pathway to discovering your real identity and calling in the world as a human being. Like, Jesus' work is the basis upon which you build a life, upon which you build an authentic identity. It starts with understanding how distorted our sense of identity and calling is apart from Jesus. We, just like Israel, fail time and time again to really live out the identity and calling that God has for us as his dearly loved children, right? We, we sin and, and we suffer and we, we have all of these experiences in life that mess with our identity. We grow up with a distorted sense of who we are, 
right? I am what I do for work, right? I, I, I'm not what I do for work. I am this relationship. I am my gender. I am my sexuality. I am my economic wealth or my lack of economic wealth. I am powerless or I am powerful. I am a capitalist or I'm a social. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Like, these are all external identities that we try on like clothing, but they're not the essence of who we are. Jesus says, what's most true about you is this. You are treasure possession in the eyes of God. You're a holy nation. You're a kingdom of priests. And man, there can be so much anxiety in trying to figure out who we are, right? In some ways, the freedom that we have in America in this particular moment for some people, the freedom that they have for some of us, can be paralyzing. Because we've been taught for some of us growing up that we can be anything we want. And so we get to our 20s and we get out of school and now we can be anything we want. <laughs> it creates all kinds of anxiety. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. And, and we try to forge an identity for ourselves. And we've got so much brokenness in our families, right? That like the people who used to be the guiding light and used to say, this is who you are. Fathers, mothers, train a child up in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. Imprinting on them their true identity and then releasing them to live into that. We don't experience that. We've not heard those words from our parents. We've not heard those words from our churches. We've not heard those words, and so we're confused. And so God says, come here. I want to tell you who you are. I want to tell you what's most important and true about you. So I want to encourage us, as you're thinking about this, whether you're like confused or you feel broken or you feel far, you're near to God and you're trying to discern um, what's in front of you. Uh, I want to encourage you with this uh, in terms of your identity and calling. Start where you are with what you know to be 100% true. Right? Start where you are because here's the thing. There are a lot of things that you don't know and I don't know about your future. Right? I don't know whether you should take this job or not. I don't know whether you should get married to this person or not. You don't know, uh, you know, there's so many, like, I don't know if you should take advantage of this financial opportunity. I don't know about your singleness. I don't know what to do with the midst of you and your brokenness and res with respect to your body and your race and your gender. There are a lot of things that I, I don't know. But here's what we know to be true. You are loved by God. Like, how much would your life change if you woke up every day and you said, I am dearly loved by God? How would that make a difference in how you show up as a spouse? How you show up in your singleness? How you show up as a neighbor? I don't need other people's approval of me. I've got it. So regardless of what my job performance evaluation says, I've got it. I'm dearly loved by my Heavenly Father, apart from anything that I do. That would change a lot about the way that we live. You are God's treasured possession. You are a holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests. You can be a holy nation and a priest regardless of your age. You can be a kingdom of priests everywhere you go, regardless of your season of life, regardless of your vocation, regardless of how much cultural capital and power you have or don't have, regardless of how much money you make, regardless of what you do for work. You can show up as a priest. And so the call of God is, hey, receive this identity from me, not as something you can achieve, but as an act of grace. And then begin to show up as a person who is a treasure possession, a priest, and a holy nation every day. And as you begin to do that with your neighbors and in the places where I've placed you, I'll show you 
what your unique calling is. But if you're not even doing that, how do you expect to go on to the greater things that God has for you? Let me pray for us. I actually have some questions. I want to throw these up here just, just for us to consider. Sorry. Just for us to consider uh, as we go to communion. I'm pretty excited. Um, and just to consider and, and to think about uh, as application, right? Am I regularly experiencing the delight of being God's treasured possession? Regularly, daily, walking in that reality? And if not, why? Is my life increasingly characterized by the holiness of God? Do I even care about that? Am I living not just personally but socially with a vision for the holiness of God in my community? Am I meaningfully committed to a community where I can discover and live out my identity and calling? Am I representing God as a priest in the relationships and opportunities God has given me right now? Let me pray over us, and we'll take communion together as we reflect on and invite God into this space with us. God is not surprised. God loves you right where you are, and he has purposes for you rooted in.